0: Hi, I'm Andy. Today's episode celebrates our one year anniversary. I genuinely can't believe it's been a whole year since we began. We'll be looking back at some of the most pertinent and popular topics that we've covered. We've been fortunate to meet some outstanding guests from celebrities to families we've had the privilege to look after. And of course, not forgetting my very own colleagues. We found that most people have questions about funerals and what, what really happens, but, but never find out those answers until our loved one sadly passes away. Our podcast is designed to answer those questions and tackle the taboo that surrounds the funeral profession. You can still submit questions. Please, please send them to liftingthelid at gseller.co.uk and we will do our absolute best to answer them for you. But for now, we hope you enjoy the clips we've chosen to celebrate our one-year anniversary. Let's look back at an episode answering one of our listener questions.
1: Uh, So what is your self-care from being in high emotional roles? How do we shut off
2: or wind down? I'd never ever thought about that until um, Alison joined the team and so Alison's one of our obviously bereavement counsellors works alongside you and I never considered self-care what I do what that what that coping mechanism was um, until she started questioning me and probing me on what I do why I do things how I do things and my self-care is I leave work and I call my mum every night so every night i call, I'd divulge my day, the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between, and I hadn't realised how much I was offloading. Yeah. And then I'd close the door, walking home, and then, I'm, and then I'm mum, mum and, yeah. mum and wife, and I hadn't realised how much self-care that, that helped me to wow. wind down and, and lose parts of my day to yeah. then carry on. But,
1: but that is the thing, because like, for Alison and myself as counsellors, we have to have, like, it's called clinical supervision, and that's, like, our offloading of all the stuff that we hear and all the trauma we yeah. hear about. And we have to have that, but most of the professions don't. Yeah. And so there's that side of it that we, you know, and she would have said that to you as, like... Uh, yeah, that's, what, what you actually yeah, doing, what are what you, you actually doing? doing. <laughs> because I, I, I mean, I was very aware of that, that, you know, you, you hear a lot, you deal with a lot of emotional people yeah. in your yeah. roles, and you, you don't get the support in the same sense that we get and we have to have yeah it's true this, right is, uh,
0: this is going to make me found, sound really basic and, you know, there. Um, and really bad this because, good. because I, I never phone my mum which I'm really sorry mum I know like, um, but uh, I don't know I, I just sort of get on with things um, so I suppose I, I like to go for a run I find that as a good coping mechanism because it sort of resets my brain yeah. uh, for the day uh, but generally I'll go home and you know interact with my daughter and, and wife and just enjoy their company and uh, I've, I've always been
3: very good at sort of boxing off what happens at work and keeping that very yeah. separate.
0: We've had some great questions over the last year and it really puts us in the spotlight so please do keep sending them in. Next my colleague Amy is interviewing the wonderful Marlene Anderson. This episode gives a real insight into multiple losses and how to handle emotional trauma.
2: So at what point did you feel like Hang on a minute. I don't have a dad. I don't have these. I don't have these memories. Did you ever? Did you ever get delayed grief from from that? From not knowing him and from um, living, trying to get to know him through your siblings and through mum. Did you ever feel a sense of loss, or is it because it's always been the norm? There's I've never been that feeling. I think going through school when I was younger, I used to find it weird that everyone else had a dad and I didn't, mm-hmm. and I didn't really understand that. So lower school, middle school, and upper school, and I think. Me not having a father um, also gave me a really it carved a bad path of unhealthy, toxic yeah. relationships and attracting men that were abusive because, because I think I wanted seen. love and I didn't understand what it was from like you know yeah. a father giving me a hug that yeah. kind of thing and like seeing mum and dad together yeah. and like yeah. that relationship yeah. form and like okay this is normal. exactly
4: this that.
0: Is I'm sure you'll agree, an incredibly powerful episode. Amy at the office, she talked about that interview for a long time afterwards. Thank you, Marlin, for your honesty. In this next clip, I interview John Adams, the former president of the NAFD. It's clear from this episode that John's drive and passion for the funeral profession is driven by the loss of his very own mother at a young age. It's because all these areas I go to, are having the same issues. Okay. And again, what I want us to do as we move forward
3: now, I'm our new CEO as well, which he's as passionate as I am, is about how we really connect
0: it, connect up all these areas together. And that's how you become even stronger as well. Absolutely. Totally agree. You seem incredibly passionate, John. Um, have you suffered a loss yourself? Is there something that drives this? So, yeah, with, with the bereavement awareness
3: within schools, which, again, we'll come on to, yeah. um, a lot of that has come from the loss of my own mother. Um, okay. Uh, her name is Maria, and still is, uh, when I was 12 years of age. And I think that experience that I went through, um, it, it has shaped me. It has shaped me. And I think it's an example that any dark moment in someone's life, it's how you flip it over and you turn it into into light. And that's what I use my mum for. She's my fuel on fire in everything I do. How I serve families, um, how I want to be at home and and with the NEFD. Yeah. And, and again, with the ed- education within the schools, it's how we empower society and community and give education. And I really believe the outcome
0: can be so positive. It's great to see so much passion within the profession. That drive to dispel the taboos and help people through a difficult time. Hopefully, in the future, we can work together again. With the next clip, I interview the Reverend Canon David Jennings. I was hugely surprised to hear an Anglican minister spending a night in
4: prison. Let's hear more. And then, after ordination, I did a Master of Philosophy degree in marketing uh, at Loughborough University at the Business School.
0: Yeah, but you still maintain you learnt the most... At in the prison. prison. The, in prison, prison the prison, I
4: learned, prison. I, learned, I learned a lot. I actually got locked in a cell once. Really? Yeah. Yeah. How long for? Well, it wasn't for very long, but I did ask the governor whether he actually thought I was an inmate, and he said, <laughs> do you really want an answer to that? It was difficult to get into, because um, the Church of England hadn't actually done this before, for ordinands in training to go and stay, visit a prison. Okay. Um, and so they had to invent a title, and they invented the title Catechist. We were to be a catechist uh, into the prison. And the first day we went, there were three of us, uh, at the gate in Canterbury prison, Uh, a guy called Fred said, I have to phone the governor to let you in. And he phoned the governor and he said, I've got three anarchists here that want (laughs) to come into the prison. (laughs) (laughs) That went down well. (laughs) Having worked with Canning Jennings, this episode
0: is far too short. He has such a huge array of different experiences and stories which keep us all entertained. Do you know what? I'm pretty certain there's enough there for a spin off podcast. Turning loss into a positive and developing a phenomenal business, we interview Ruth Blakemore of Life Ledger. What is Life Ledger? You know, just for the, the people listening, <laughs> yes. I know, but yeah, well, yes. what, what is it?
5: I, I think it, it serves a problem in the, in the community, which is that when somebody passes away, the bereaved left behind very quickly have to face the administrative burden Um, and
0: this was something you'd experienced no doubt
5: it was absolutely um of trying to inform organizations of the death um so i can when my mum passed away i partly wanted to do something which was a legacy to her and i'd run and been involved with lots of big businesses tech um all sorts of banking, media. So I looked around the world and tried to find gaps in the market that would help the elderly or the bereaved.
0: I spoke with Ruth after the interview. Again, there's so many different stories. Ruth, she spent some time working with some big names within the music industry. And I've got to admit, with some of the name drops, I did have a touch of the green-eyed monster. My colleague, Joe, he had the privilege of looking after the family of Isla Tanzi. He also had the privilege of interviewing them. This is a very difficult episode and a difficult clip, but a real insight into the full journey of struggling with the loss of a child. So
2: they were like, We've got the tumour, we've clipped, we've got it all out, um, we think it's going to be all right. But then, about a couple of days later, they got some results back, didn't they? And they had to call us in into the sort of horrible side room in Birmingham Children's Hospital. Mm. And I knew it wasn't good because there was a student nurse on placement. She was a lovely nurse, but she cried all, she cried all morning. She couldn't even look at us. Yeah. She was just, like, ignoring us and, mm-hmm. thought, oh, this isn't going to be good. And they took us into the room and they told us, didn't they, that mm-hmm. Isla had... Um, what do they call it? Did they-, um,
6: they called it a glioblastoma multiform, initially, which is a tumour that they, they removed. Um, they confirmed it. it. crushed her spinal cord and she'd never walk again. She'd been mm-hmm. paraplegic. Um, but... They the initial tests showed that it was malignant, um, and then they had to wait for further tests to find out the grading yeah. of the tumor, um, which seemed to happen quite quickly. So I mean, we would we kept saying like we've got to keep optimistic, you know, you've, you've got to kind of like you've got to find hope in something. Mm.
2: Yeah.
6: Um, but every time
2: we had hope,
6: the news it was yeah. turning a corner and, and being faced with even more bad news, wasn't it? And yeah. it just became just this kind of spiral down, really, with like the kind of options and, and what might happen with her. And then we found out it was stage four. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we found out that it had a mutation of DIPG, mm-hmm. which usually grows in the brain. Yeah, um,
2: yeah it doesn't
6: normally grow in the spines. So. No, but so, so it had this kind of genetic mutation, and they, they said they'd treat um, her with radiotherapy in order to try and kill off any residual cells, Mm. but there was a possibility that it was going to kind of cross the brain blood barrier and then start to develop in the brain, Mm. which is what happened really. So,
0: Thank you Joe for leading this episode. I know Isla has had a lasting impact on him and, and of course our local community. The full episode explains more about the charity set up in Isla's name. Isla Stones. We're proud to continue supporting the charity and the work it does for other families facing a childhood cancer diagnosis. One of our early episodes, we speak to social media blogger Lauren, the honest mum, who opens up about the loss of her baby boy.
4: She remembers
2: in that moment that the doctor came to me, and I can still visualise it now, the doctor came over to me and she just said, there's nothing more that we can do, and I'm really sorry. And I said, thank you, because I knew that they'd done everything that they could you know they they felt that emotion like we felt it and they really cared and they had looked at every single avenue they could look at and nothing was working and he was just too poorly and he was on the cusp of even being viable to to be alive you know at 24 weeks and four days he was just on and he was 838 grams he was tiny tiny,
0: really tiny So I mean that piece that you just mentioned there around um, they did their absolute best, I mean from a, a funeral director's perspective, that, that's we kind of feel your pain too, mm-hmm. we sort of take a bit of onus and want to do our absolute best, nowhere near the pain that you feel, but of course it's really difficult for us to go through it, we have, we have lots of support mechanisms, co- coping mechanisms to assist as well. You have your own
2: in-house bereavement services. We absolutely
0: do, yeah, so they're, they're more for um, families. Uh, We're in various different bodies that we can communicate with if if we as individuals are struggling. Thank you so much to Lauren for sharing her heartbreaking loss with such honesty. And of course for challenging me with questions. I just hope my answers were as insightful. Take a listen to the next clip to get a real insight into the day-to-day life of our own managing director, Joseph Barsby. You know, you, you lined your first coffin at age 12. I mean, what does that feel like? So from myself, from my perspective, I haven't been around funeral um, for my whole life. Mm-hmm. You clearly have been. Mm-hmm. So what does that feel like, as you know, as a 12 year old? Um, so I was
3: always, I always came into the business with my mum and dad um, when I was in the school holidays. I was always asking them when we could go home and I was sat in the office and I knew all the team and I was on their computers and asking lots of annoying questions to them and they were keeping me, keeping me, uh, keeping me me entertained, exactly. Um, So it was kind of a natural progression that in my school holidays when my mum and dad wanted me to earn some pocket money that I helped out in the back of house and cleaned the cars, swept up um, and then I, I asked and it what did it feel like? It felt like a natural progression. Okay. Um, like it's something that I wanted to do. Um, I didn't have any involvement with looking after a deceased until a lot later on. Okay. Um, but I was still in and around the environment of caring for people, although I wasn't doing it myself until I was a lot older.
0: I found that Joseph brings the same passion as John Adams. At the office, it's great to have leadership with someone so forward thinking. But it's clear that drive comes from wanting to provide the absolute best service we possibly can for the families we have the privilege to look after have you ever wondered why it's so important to plan ahead the next clip with my colleague amy explains why so i think there's quite a unique point with um, t Seller here that if the funeral plan grows above we actually refund don't we
2: yeah we do and we still keep flexibility within the plan so If people are taking out a plan and today, in today's moment, they require three limousines because we've got a big family, we're planning ahead for all the grandchildren and so on and so forth. But actually at time of need, circumstances have changed, family living away, some people may not be able to come, so on and so forth. Those limousines can be taken off the bill. So that money is refunded back to the family or the money's offset against something else. We would like a little bit more catering. We would like more flowers, orders of service. That money can be reallocated within the plan at the time of need. So it's still fit for purpose for that loved one and for the family saying goodbye.
0: Absolutely. I think that episode has made us all think about our own funeral wishes and planning ahead. Myself and Amy, when we look back, we were amazed at the number of times we both say, absolutely. I think someone should tally it up. We interviewed Tara DiMarco. Let's find out what it's like and how to train to become a funeral celebrant. So not granddad. No. Uh, I'm talking a family that you're not familiar with. Um, <clears throat> how did you feel doing that?
5: I felt honored. Yeah. Privileged. No, racking I felt the weight of responsibility <laughs> it was terrifying quite frankly and yeah, it was okay. terrifying but i think rightly so you should be terrified walking yeah. into that first service because you want to do a fantastic job but i was actually very fortunate um kev from g seller okay um yeah. where, when i was beginning um this type of work i met with kev had a chat to him talked about my training and my experience Um, And very much he took me under his wing at that point and and helped me and supported me and and gave me my my first family to work with. Um, As I say, great privilege to do so. Yes, but a a wholly terrifying experience. But what a wonderful family. Such a gentle group of people who loved that person that they had lost dearly.
0: Thank you, Tara, for sharing your story with us. It's clear to see the sense of achievement Tara has when delivering that service. But my word, the pressures involved in doing so. I mean, after all, there's only one opportunity to get it right. We filmed several episodes with my colleague and bereavement counsellor, Tracy. Let's hear from her now about what is grief.
1: And the acceptance bit, I do take a bit of an issue with that because I don't feel that we accept the loss of somebody we love dearly. I think it's more that we learn to live with it.
0: Okay. So, I mean, so you talk for a, a kind of a linear piece there, which we don't feel is quite accurate as no. such. I mean, I've studied models and oscillating theories well, yeah. where we bounce around all over the place. Different people, though, so I imagine we don't all grieve in the same way.
1: No, no. And, the, and you mentioned the oscillation, and that is more what it, the realistic way that it is. And some people will, it's bouncing from, like, getting on and living life to actually feeling like you're debilitated and can't cope with anything and we bounce between the two Um, and some people will be more in one area and some will be more in the other and then you can look at somebody else and think well they're not feeling like I'm feeling but they've lost somebody that they love so why am I feeling like this so actually that we're all very individual in the way that we grieve
0: yeah absolutely do people ever ask you I mean what does grief feel like
1: yeah and I think that's people want to know that they're not going crazy almost right. that yeah you know, they want to if i never say there's anything normal there's no normal way to grieve but actually there's usual ways that people can grieve so it's not uncommon ways that it happens so sometimes that's when the one to one therapy is quite useful because that can help people to like we can reality check the fact that um you know you're not going crazy and that these are very usual responses and, and people knowing that, can, it can really help them to, to feel that they're a little bit more in control of what's going on.
0: Grief is such a huge topic. Thank you, Tracy, for doing a great job in giving me a small insight into it. I know there's so much more to hear as grief is so complicated. One of our more popular episodes was embalming. Here's my colleague Rhonda to tell us more.
5: Uh, basically, I was paid 25 quid a week. Um, and it gave me an opportunity to get into a profession that I wanted to get into.
0: Okay. So it's quite a strange choice in profession, to be honest. I mean, what what were people's reaction to that?
5: Um, initially, uh, shock horror. Um, okay. you know, an unsuitable job for a woman.
0: Okay. Okay. So this was back back in the eighties, wasn't it? Nineteen eighty four. Yeah, different times. So we're here to talk about embalming. So can you give me a brief history? What what is embalming? Where's it come from?
5: Well, embalming's been carried out for thousands of years. I mean, everybody knows about how the Egyptians used to carry out their processes. Um, 20th century modern embalming now is obviously totally different to to how things were done thousands of years ago. Okay. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it's it's something that we all feel is a necessity you know
0: i found Rhonda's episode incredibly interesting not just about the embalming but the difficulties she's faced in trying to get into that role we hope you've enjoyed a brief look back over the last year i have to say i'm a little bit disappointed i haven't been presented with a cape but but here's a hint maybe next year remember we want to hear from you please ask questions, submit them to liftingthelid at gseller.co.uk and we'll see you for our next episode.